Uh, a little while ago now, uh, I was doing my Christmas shopping and one of the websites I ended up on, I saw for sale a series of t-shirts with the slogan, Jesus is coming, look busy. Uh, not perhaps uh, an item of clothing that I would choose to wear or, or indeed would buy for others, uh, but it got me thinking uh, about what we want our lives to look like knowing that Jesus is coming back. Are are we tempted, perhaps, towards that attitude of putting on a spurt of last-minute good behavior to try and make things all all right uh, as Jesus returns, not knowing when it will be, but tempted towards that attitude? Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, was reportedly once uh, out hoeing his garden uh, one morning, and somebody happened by and asked him, what would you do if you knew Jesus were coming back this afternoon? His answer, I suppose I'd just keep on hoeing my garden. He was doing what he should be doing. He would continue doing it. And I guess if I asked of you that question today, what would you do today if you knew Jesus were coming back this evening? Most of you would probably be quite happy to say, well, I'd do the same things as I've done today. I'd come to church this morning, I'd spend the afternoon with family and friends in uh, fellowship, uh, and I'd be back here again this evening. We'd be pretty happy to say, yep, that's what I'd be doing. Uh, But if I asked you that question tomorrow morning, or if I asked you that question on Friday evening, I wonder whether your answer would be quite the same. What would you want to be doing knowing that Jesus were coming back just then? Now, we shouldn't necessarily expect that our answer to what should you do with your time will be the same if we knew he was coming back today as knowing he's coming at an indefinite time. Uh, We plan differently according to the timescale. We plan for uh, a weekend break differently to how we plan for uh, a fortnight's holiday abroad. Uh, I am very much looking forward uh, to sometime in the hopefully not too distant future moving to a house where I might be able to stay for more than a year or two. Uh, We've been married uh, nine and a half years and lived in seven different houses during that time. I am really looking forward to stopping moving around and maybe being able to choose a colour of paint that isn't magnolia and maybe even buy some furniture that actually fits right in the space instead of just shoving what we've already got in anywhere it will go. I am looking forward to that kind of a longer-range thinking. But whatever kind of timescale we're considering this on, we need to be considering it. And I wonder for many of us, when was the last time that we thought at all about the fact that Jesus is going to be coming back? Some friends of mine, uh, about a year before us, they got married and they, they tweaked ever so slightly the vows that they made in the marriage service. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, uh, to love and to cherish till death do us part or Christ returns. Uh, a very minor adjustment perhaps, but actually a helpful reminder that this is something that could happen in lifetime, in my lifetime, in your lifetime. How would your life be different if you knew Jesus were returning at the end of the year, or for that matter, at the end of the week? Now, of course, we do not know that he is returning on that kind of timescale, and we shouldn't try to figure out when it is. That's where our reading began. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. We cannot know when it will be, 
and yet we must be prepared. Uh, so we should be preparing for that day. And as we look at these two parables, uh, I hope that whether you're a Christian here this evening or you're not, uh, that you will find in these parables both warnings and encouragements. Uh, so as we look at these two parables of the faithful and unfaithful servant and then the ten virgins, uh, that is what we should see. And so we begin with this faithful servant in verse 45. Who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food and drink at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So we see in this parable of the the servant, uh, we're going to see three different things. Firstly, very briefly, uh, again we see that the coming of Jesus is unknown, and in fact unknown to the point of acting like it's not going to happen at all. Uh, when we come to the, the uh, servant characterized as unfaithful, he says to himself, my master is delayed, and he begins to act as if the master will never come. And, and as we look at the world around us, and indeed as we look at uh, the church in this nation, all too often as we look at our own lives, that is what we see. We see people acting as if Jesus is so delayed in his coming that it might as well never happen, that we we cannot trust that it will, we can behave as if he were not coming. Jesus does not allow that to stand. And so we have this servant characterized first as a faithful servant and then as an unfaithful one. And when he's faithful, when he does his assigned tasks, then the master will be pleased with him. Verse 46 It will be good for that servant. He will be blessed. Blessed is that servant. Uh, This this is significant language, isn't it? If we think about how the New Testament uses this language of the blessing of God, the the Beatitudes uh, color in for us some of the idea of what it is to be blessed by God, some of the fullness and significance of that. This is not just he's going to be fine. This is not just, you know, he'll he'll get a nice pat on the back. He will be blessed by God because he is doing as he is expected to do. And indeed, he will be entrusted with more authority because he has been faithful with what was given to him. Now, some have seen this servant and seen that he is uh, set over the other servants and therefore said, well, this is uh, an instruction for Christian leaders, for church ministers, for elders, uh, and people in that kind of authority. Now, clearly, uh, it is uh, uh, relevant to people in those roles, and certainly the rest of the New Testament has things to say about the seriousness of that responsibility. Uh, But I'm afraid the rest of you aren't off the hook here, uh, because I don't think that this servant is characterized as the set over the other servants in order to cast it as a church leader, but rather because it is the servant over the others who has the opportunity to do things well or to do things wrong. The the lower down servants, they don't really have a chance to go off and eat and drink with drunkards. It is the head of the servants who has that opportunity. So the, the point that he's making is not only that those set over others must be responsible but that all must be responsible in their assigned task, in their given position. 
Now, that uh, is fleshed out much more fully in the parable of the talents that follows on after uh, the end of the the parable of the virgins. We're not going to get there this evening, uh, but if you want to think a bit more about the kind of specific nature of responsibility in the light of Jesus' return, then that would be a place to start. Uh, so this is, this is a picture for all of us of faithfulness in our assigned task. And the result of that is blessing. Uh, unfortunately then, this sermon is also recast as a wicked servant. And verse 48 asks the question, what will happen if this servant is wicked and begins to beat his fellow servants? And verse 51 gives us the answer. The master will return and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not light stuff. This isn't uh, easy to think about and to consider, but this is here in God's word, and this is important for us to grapple with because it gives us a serious warning. Now, again... Uh, some people have been uh, confused by some of the language used in this and have gone off down an unhelpful line. And I want to just address that in case um, some of you have picked up that idea elsewhere. Uh, some have said that because in both cases he called a servant of the master, then both uh, faithful servant and unfaithful servant are both pictures of Christians, of followers of Jesus And therefore, the picture is that some Christians are are more faithful than others, and some are blessed, and some uh, get put into the part of heaven where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, you know, they're just not quite good enough for the whole thing, and so they get sent to sit over on the naughty step. Now, I don't really understand how people think that this holds together with the rest of Scripture, which talks about heaven as a place where there is no more crying and no more tears and no more sickness and no more death. This doesn't hold together with Revelation 21 at all when God comes to wipe away tears. And yet, you read this in commentaries, and I have heard it preached from pulpits. Now, this is a profound misunderstanding. I can see the desire to downplay the seriousness of punishment to say that actually it's just a slightly less nice bit of heaven, it's okay really, but we cannot allow that. It doesn't fit together. And in fact, in trying to downplay the seriousness of punishment, what you end up with is downplaying the reward. You end up with a heaven that's only worth getting to if you're somehow in the super spiritual elite. It's not hold together at all. Uh, so don't get that picture in your head at all. That as he's characterized as an unfaithful servant, this is clearly in fact someone who is not a follower of Jesus at all, who is not really a servant of the master. In his actions, he shows that despite the fact that he should be a servant, he isn't. He does not act as a servant acts. He does not do what his master requires of him. He is not, in reality, a servant of the master. And so this has to be then a picture of those who, perhaps to all appearances, look like Christians, at least for a while, and yet are not. And the result is to be cut in pieces and put with the hypocrites where there is weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. And if that idea of gnashing of teeth sounds a little bit comical to you, well, take a step back and consider the picture that the rest of the Bible paints of a place of sadness, of suffering, of regret, and a condemnation for all eternity. This is not a light thing. This is not a minor thing. This is serious and significant punishment. And we can only have these two categories. We have those who are rebels in their attitude and in their actions, and we have those who are trusting in salvation in Jesus' name. Those who have cast their sin on him, and those who, when God looks at them, he no longer sees their imperfection. He no longer sees their rebellion, but sees only Christ's perfection, sees them washed in the blood of the Lamb. There are only these two possibilities. And so if we pull together these three elements, if we pull together an unexpected timing of return, the, the reality of rewards for faithful service, and the, the terror of the reality of punishment, then I guess we get to uh, what the ancient Rabbi Eliezer described. And his advice was, repent one day before your death. It's a tempting idea, isn't it? Have fun in the meantime, do what you like, have a bit of a laugh, and then get in with God at the last minute. Jesus is coming. Look busy. Now, of course, there's an obvious problem, isn't there? When will that day come? And when his followers asked Rabbi Eliezer how they were to know what day that would be, his reply was, all the more reason to repent today, lest you die tomorrow. Or, we might add, lest Christ return tomorrow. Because the reality is that we do not know. And so if you have never repented, if you have never taken that step, if you know, sitting here this evening, that despite the fact that you are sat in church for the second time today, that actually that is not where you are, that you are not a true servant, today is the day to do something about it. Do not put it off. It is not something for when you're older. It is something for now. Don't think you'll do it one day before your death. You might not get that chance. So let me encourage you, uh, come and talk to me afterwards, speak to Andy afterwards. There is no conversation that either of us would rather have this evening than that one with you, if that is your situation. Do please come and talk. Uh, Equally, if you've got questions that need to be answered, because you know you're not quite there yet of making that decision, then again, come and talk to us. But let me encourage you, whatever it looks like, whatever the cost for you is going to be, if you have unfinished business with God, then begin today in obedience. Equally, perhaps for some of you, you think you've been following, but you're not quite sure. You don't really know whether that's actually where you're at. You kind of feel like maybe you once were, but things have crowded in around the edges and, well, you've drifted away a bit and who knows. Well, the answer is the same, isn't it? Turn in obedience. Because ultimately it doesn't matter where you are right now. What matters is where you're going to be. So turn to Jesus now because he has promised to receive you. It is an absolute promise. Turn to him and then be faithful. Now, Jesus does not stop there in his uh, telling of parables. Uh, He continues past the break with a few more, and we're going to look 
as well at this parable of the ten virgins. Now again in this parable we have three groups of characters. We have the bridegroom who once again is delayed and comes at an unexpected time. Again we have the good virgins, the wises, and we have the foolish virgins. Now uh, at this point in history, I am assured, bridesmaids were responsible for lighting the procession as the groom comes to his bride's house, collects her, and brings her back to his house. That is their key job, to light that procession. It's an important celebration, it's part of the party, and here it's a particularly important job, because for whatever reason, the bridegroom comes in the middle of the night. They need these torches. And then we have this division into those who are wise and prepared, and those who are foolish and unprepared, those who don't have enough oil for their lamps. Uh, I didn't grow up going camping. That's something that uh, Joe has introduced me to in the years that we've known one another. Uh, But it didn't take going on very many trips for me to learn that checking that you have a torch with batteries that work is quite an important step in preparation for that expedition. Indeed, uh, you really want some spare batteries as well. To, To fail to make that kind of provision is just asking for a stubbed toe in the middle of the night as you stumble across a field trying to find somewhere to go to the toilet. I I learned quite quickly the importance of this kind of preparation. And in fact, the situation for these bridesmaids is even worse than that. Because in failing to make preparation, they're not just ruining their own evening. In fact, they're ruining everybody's evening. This is a wedding, remember. So if we continue with the battery analogy, this is maybe more like the photographer turning up for the wedding with no batteries for their camera. We don't tend to use torches at weddings now, but we do take photos. And that isn't a minor thing, is it? It's it's disrespectful. It's foolish to turn up without having made proper provision. And the wise virgins are right to refuse to share their oil because it's so much better to have five torches that you can rely on than ten that you can't. Now, of course, this is about more than just checking that you've got your supplies, isn't it? This isn't just about uh, preparing well for a camping trip or a wedding or whatever it might be. This is about being ready for Jesus coming back. And again, we have these ten virgins, these ten bridesmaids, who start out all looking like bridesmaids. And by the end of it, we see that five of them are anything but. One thing is asked of them, one job that they have, and they do not do it. And so we come to verse 12. The bridegroom answered them, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Again, it's not easy to hear, is it? It's not easy to read. But it is absolutely clear. Five virgins do not get to go to the feast. So this isn't just a concert with early bird pricing and then it costs a bit more to get in on the door. This is more an exam that you need to prepare for. Not that that's on my mind at all. Sooner or later, the revision must come to an end. You have to go and actually take the test. And in this case, you don't even know when the test is going to be. So you don't get to do the last night cramming. You're going to have to actually learn the material properly. There's a great danger, isn't there, that we we act as if life and this earth are going to go on forever. 
No. The day will come when there is no second chance. Maybe you'll have a long and graceful death and preparation. Maybe you'll be hit by a bus as you walk to the tube station this evening. This world will end one day. Maybe it'll be another 2,000 years. Maybe it'll be less than two days. Jesus will return. And one day the opportunity will be gone. These foolish virgins are left standing outside. And I don't know about you, but I am both looking forward to and dreading that day. That reading that we had from Joel earlier. The great and awesome day of the Lord. Or great and terrible day of the Lord. Some translations have it. You see, there are two things that will happen at that point. Firstly, there will be an end to suffering. And secondly, there will be no second chances. I look at my, my grand. She lives with my parents and she's, she's really struggling now with all kinds of different health problems. She's had a couple of falls. Um, you know, using walkers and wheelchairs and all these kinds of things around. And I look at the the coming of this day and I think how wonderful that one day she will be able to run and dance and enjoy the experience of being in her body and enjoy all of life again. How wonderful that that day will come. And then I look at my other granny who does not know Jesus, uh, is definite that she does not want to know Jesus. And I know the reality of what that day will be for her as well. This is a great and terrible day. You see, I want my granny to have one last chance I want the reality to be that when Jesus returns in the clouds and there is no possible opportunity for any doubt any longer, everyone will know without a shadow of a doubt, this is God here. I want there to be another chance then. I want her to have that opportunity. And I hope that you kind of wish your friends and family would have that opportunity too. But I know that that will not be the reality. Because, well, it's like wanting to walk into your exam and read all the questions and then go out and study the textbooks and go back in and sit it. It's not how exams work. It's like the guy who wants to be your friend the day after you win the lottery. That is not how this works. The bridesmaids knew that the bridegroom was coming, didn't they? They knew that their job was to be prepared. The photographer on your wedding day, if the bride turns up and the photographer says, oh, could you just wait half an hour while I go and charge the batteries? It doesn't work like that. You don't get to do that. And that is not how this works with God either. You have been told. You know what is coming. If you haven't been told it before, I have told you now. This is the reality of what is coming. Do not, do not, do not miss the moment. Do not miss out on the opportunity. Because there is terrible news and there is wonderful news. There is the best news imaginable. Because right now, right this evening we can guarantee that we will join those wise virgins at the wedding banquet. 
That day when there will be a feast in the presence of God. That day is coming. That day is something that we can be a part of. That day is on offer for you and I. And it's not just a day. It goes on for all eternity. That is the reality. That is the massive dichotomy between the wonderful prospects set before us and the terrible realities that are the alternative. So if you are Martin Luther, then by all means, go on hoeing your garden. If you're a Christian here this evening, by all means, keep coming to church. Keep being a good and godly husband and father and keep being a diligent employee. Keep working hard at uh, presenting Christ to your friends and neighbours. Keep doing all the things that you're doing. But if not, will you please put down the hoe, get down on your knees and ask God to forgive you? Because he promises that he will. Let's pray.